Hey, everybody. It's so good to see y'all. I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Luke chapter 13. We're going to be there this evening for the next little bit of our time together, looking at a very small parable with a whole lot to teach us. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. A couple of years ago, uh, I spent a few days in Israel visiting friends from our church who were there living and working at the time. It wasn't a long trip. And it wasn't one of those epic Holy Land sightseeing trips that you've heard about. Uh, But still, we took a day to drive into Jerusalem and to walk the streets of that city. I imagine that's a a stunning experience for anybody like me who's grown up hearing about this place from your very earliest memories. And I certainly experienced that kind of awe, you know, to stand there and, and look around at where it all really happened to stand there in front of the remaining wall of the second temple and look at it and then beyond it over to the hill that is known as the Mount of Olives where Jesus walked and talked and delivered to his own band of disciples some of the most important teaching that they ever received. It was incredible. But perhaps I was even more struck by something I didn't expect to feel and now remember most about the whole experience. I was struck by the fact that this place, for all its beauty, for all its historical gravitas that no one can deny, is, is ultimately just really, really small. The whole country could fit six times over into my home state of Alabama. There's something almost scandalous, scandalous about the fact that the, the Mount of Olives on which Jesus so often walked and from which he delivered his iconic teaching where he shared some of the most important moments of his life with those most important to him is an actual mount and really more of a hill. And the promised land itself is really just land and and honestly, just not that much of it. What I realized as I had these feelings, as I had this, this, this new perspective on what I was seeing was that I was getting myself in those moments a kind of gut level experience of what has often been scandalous about Christianity to those who've encountered it. We Christians believe that the God who made everything that is, the God who made the world and even now is intending and accomplishing its remaking This God who plans to establish a kingdom in which all the sin and brokenness of the world is redeemed, a kingdom in which every tribe and tongue and nation from every corner of the globe will have a home forever. We believe that. What are the chances chances that the main action in this big story, a story as big as all the world and the God who is far beyond it, would take place here? on this actual dirt, surrounded by these actual hills. That doesn't make sense. It's easy to think there's just no way something like that could happen in a place like like this. I realized I was getting a personal taste in those moments of what you might call the scandal of Christianity at the heart of Christianity, as old as Christianity itself this impossible gap between the claims about what God is doing and the means that God is using to do the work. Uh, the reason I call it a scandal, as so many others have, is that it, 
It's tempting when you see that gap between the scale of what's claimed and the means used to accomplish this work. To think that you've just seen through the whole thing. That you've just exposed it for the fraud that it is. That it's like Toto grabbing the curtain that hides the Wizard of Oz and you realize, oh, it's just a dude back there behind that curtain. That's been a common experience, confronting the smallness containing the bigness. Maybe that's something you felt as you've explored Christianity and learned more about what's involved. And in case it is, in case that might be even what you're feeling right now, I've got some good news for you. The parable that we're gonna look at this evening is a parable aimed at exactly this reality. It's a parable that tells us straightforwardly, as clearly as Jesus could make it, that what seems to us like a scandal, like, a, like an almost gotcha moment that exposes the whole thing with part of the plan from the very beginning and is intended to make a point that we have to receive if we want the goodness of this kingdom in our own lives and for our futures. This scandal is intentional. God works in unexpected ways and he does that on purpose. One of the things we've noticed as we've worked our way through these parables one by one is how often Jesus uses these things to confound people's expectations. These parables are surprising. They're meant to be that way. Sometimes they're shocking in what they tell us about God's kingdom and who belongs to it. But I don't know of a shock, certainly not one so far, that can match the shock of this little parable of the mustard seed. I want to read it for you now. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in verse 18 of Luke chapter 13. Friends, this is God's word to us this morning. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through this little parable and it's simple, straightforward point in three steps this afternoon. I simply want to show you how the kingdom begins, where the kingdom is headed, and how you can know we'll get there. How the kingdom begins, where the kingdom is headed, and how you can know that we'll get there. How the kingdom begins. Jesus begins his parable with a straightforward question. What's the kingdom of God like? What should I compare it to? I want you to think about this as a real question followed by a pause. I want you to think of this as a teacher uh, sending his students out on their own to get their wheels turning, you know, a little exercise to get the juices flowing, to get your mind in the right spot, put their ideas into motion and on paper, then come back to the group for a discussion of it. What is the kingdom of God like? How would you answer that question? Jesus' first hearers would have had an answer. His Jewish audience had read their history books, after all. They had images in their minds of the reigns of David and Solomon, the great kings of Israel, in a time of peace and security and prosperity. The kingdom of God would surely look something like, like that, right? Jesus' first audience would have also been paying attention to the world they were living in then, at that time, to who it was that ruled over them. They would have known of the Roman Empire. They were its subjects. 
By the end of this century in which Jesus is teaching, the Roman Empire stretched from England all the way down to North Africa, from Syria all the way over to Spain, covering nearly 2 million square miles. Did you know that? Something like one in five people in the whole world lived and died under Roman rule that century. And the Romans made it all work through the greatest army ever seen in their world. Their army had impressive weapons. They had fancy uniforms that they all wore. They had banners that they caroled and all sorts of symbols of their power to make sure that anyone who saw them knew who they were dealing with and knew not to mess with them. What is God's kingdom like? Probably a little something like the Roman Empire, only bigger and better. What should we compare this kingdom to, Jesus asks. I don't know, maybe a hurricane, some sort of unstoppable force. Maybe compare it to a fortress walled in granite, some sort of immovable object like that. But whatever it is, definitely big, definitely and obviously impressive. What is the kingdom of God like? I don't think any of us would have been any more likely than any of them to come up with what Jesus says next or to be any more pleased than they were by his answer. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. That's what it's like. Wait, like, like what? Like, like a mustard seed buried in the ground? Uh, yeah, that's right. Friends, there's, no, there's nothing special about the mustard seed that you don't already know about that any sort of historical context might unlock some sort of nuclear power built into the little things. No, Jesus chose the mustard seed, that, what, what set it apart was that it was a proverbial stand-in for, for tininess. It was so small amongst the seeds that he could have chosen that, that he chose it to, to, to remind them that this is basically nothing. Nothing to see here, almost literally. And once it's buried in the ground, there is literally nothing to see here. What Jesus says is shocking, but straightforward. In its beginning, the kingdom of God looks small and seems insignificant. Why is that? Why is that? He doesn't actually say in this parable, but fortunately, we have the sweeping context of the Bible to know where he's coming from here because this is not a new idea. And the rest of the Bible makes it clear to us that God works in this way for two reasons. Because it glorifies him and it humbles us. God loves to work in unexpected ways using things that seem small and insignificant because it glorifies him and it humbles us. First, it glorifies God. This kingdom that he's talking about looks nothing like the kingdom of Solomon or the kingdom of Rome or even the United States of America. And that's because it's not the kingdom of Solomon or the kingdom of Rome or any other kingdom under heaven. It's the kingdom of God. It looks the way it does so that you'll know that it's God's kingdom. This is how he chooses to work in the world. So, you know, he's the one who's working. What Jesus says here, as I've mentioned about the kingdom of God, it, it's meant to be surprising, but at the same time, it fits a pattern that's really clear all through the Bible. 
When God first promised to build a kingdom, his first promise of a, of a people that he would build and through whom he would redeem everything that's been broken by sin in this world, when he first makes that promise, Genesis chapter 12, he makes his promise to an old man, a man far too old to father children with no land of his own to call home. And he promises this man descendants that will outnumber the stars and a land flowing with milk and honey. David is another highlight from the story the Bible tells. And before David was a great king, when God first anointed him to be king, David was just a young shepherd boy. He was, in fact, the least impressive in his family full of boys. His family had a lot of strapping men, a lot more fit for the job, but he was chosen by God through his prophet precisely because he didn't look like much. 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells the story and applies it. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Friends, this is what God wants us to notice about what he's doing. He doesn't play our games of power and prestige. He will build his kingdom in a way that makes it really clear to everyone who's looking that it isn't the kingdom of Solomon or the kingdom of Rome, but the kingdom of God. It's like nothing you've ever seen or heard of before. This kingdom begins like a grain of mustard seed. That glorifies God and it humbles us. Before we move on from this first part of the parable, I, I want us to see that there is in it a crucial challenge for every one of us. Several of the New Testament scholars I read for some background on this thing talked about how this image of the mustard seed shows the kingdom of God begins small, it's hidden, and grows slowly. It's small, it's invisible, it's slow. I got to thinking how that, that basically inverts everything that, that I want for myself. How about you? I'd rather have impressive, wouldn't you? Big and eye-catching. And speaking of eye-catching, is anything hidden anymore in the 21st century? These days when we stage everything from outfits to hangouts to out-of-town vacations just for the Instagrammable moments, invisible? His kingdom's invisible? Not for me. And slow. We don't do slow. I, mean, I like the fact now that we're marketing diets based on the fact that they last 30 days. I like the idea of being able to overcome my 30 plus years of careless eating and inconsistent exercise in the course of 30 days. That sounds great. I want fast, quick results, don't you? We like impressive. We like visible, the better to be admired and envied. We like fast and immediate results and we like things impressive and visible and fast because ultimately, friends, we love ourselves, don't we? That's pride. God knows that about us. God loves us. And partly because he loves us, he has designed his kingdom to take our focus off of ourselves and put it on him where it belongs. For now, the transformative and world-changing and sin-defeating and soul-renewing work of his kingdom carries on in ways nobody would ever expect. It carries on through his word going out like it is right now, right here in this moment, and then echoing back and forth amongst you guys after you've heard it. 
It carries on as his spirit convicts us of sin and draws us to the beauty of Jesus. It carries on as week after week we gather to worship and string our weeks together, then scatter to encourage each other and to love our neighbors in all sorts of ways that on their own seem unremarkable. This kingdom lived out for now in local churches like ours is like a mustard seed. It's planted in the ground and stays looking small and, and hidden even slowly growing is that okay with you perhaps especially in america where entertainment and newness drive so much of our behavior and where we have so many choices even in what church we'll attend we can tend to come and sit and then say in our hearts as we sit down and and get ready all right let's see what you've got this week Impress me. Now, you guys are a self-selecting crowd. You're here right now, and I don't know that I've ever impressed anyone. So I'm not necessarily talking about you, but I'm going to talk about something that I see in my own heart as I approach this church and any church I've ever been involved in. It's easy to sit back and evaluate. Music was okay, I guess, but it sure wasn't as good as I heard the rhyming last night, we might say to ourselves. This sermon may not be terrible, but uh, it isn't as insightful as that podcast I finished yesterday. and Not quite as funny as SNL was last night. And, and these people, I look around at these people, and I mean, some of them are okay, but, but some of them are losers too. I mean, did you see what that guy was wearing when he walked in? I, they don't dress like me. They don't really look like me. I, I'm not sure I want to be associated with them. Friends, we can bring this kind of consumer mentality, this desire to be impressive and to be impressed into our local church life, forgetting that that God's kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's meant to be unimpressive. That's That's how the focus stays on him and not on us. And the fact that God has done it this way, seeing now that that's what he's doing and why, brings to us the humility we need to make local church life work. To be able to keep on giving ourselves freely and fully and with love to imperfect and unimpressive churches who hold to the gospel faithfully and love each other carefully. This is how the kingdom begins. Like a mustard seed buried in the ground. That glorifies God. And thanks be to God, that humbles us. But this parable is also here to teach us where the kingdom is headed. The second half of the parable carries us from the humble beginnings of God's kingdom to its glorious end. Did you see it? Yeah, it begins like a mustard seed that's sowed in the ground, but then it grew. It became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. I want you to see, friends, and I want to encourage you with where this kingdom is headed. It's crazy, isn't it? To think that it's possible that something so small as a seed could become a place of rest for birds. But it's true. I think of the mighty maple tree out in my front yard that's beautifully turning orange right now. You know, that, that tree, massive, I don't even know how old it is, but it looks like it's at least 100 years old. It's huge. It once started as one of those little helicopter seed pods, you know, that flow down, spinning around from its perch at the base of the leaves. It was 
big, tall trees, annoying trees in my backyard, these black walnut trees. You know what I'm talking about? These big, ugly black walnuts that fall down out of it. Chock full of squirrels who now make their homes up there in a tree that once existed as the very little seed pods that they're burying all over my yard to annoy me. It's not the kind of thing you would think were possible if you didn't know that it were true. And so it is with the kingdom. What seems small and insignificant to us in God's eyes, by God's power, is the unstoppable force that is one day going to encompass the whole world. This isn't one of those parables that needs a lot of unpacking to get the point. The point is really straightforward. What I want to make sure is that you get the encouragement and the perspective that we desperately need in our time and in our place from this parable and its simple point. What begins small and insignificant, what seems hidden and slowly growing, well, it's not what it seems. A couple weeks ago, I saw a spread in the Tennessee and charting the, the expected massive decline in church participation due to this pandemic. Just this week, Jonathan shared stats with me about participation in the Church of England this past year, where something like 40% of the churches are declining and 50% of the churches have fewer than 26 people in attendance. Can you believe that? And while COVID certainly hadn't helped these trends, friends, the trends themselves on both sides of the Atlantic are nothing new. And they're deeply discouraging. For a lot of reasons, uh, to whatever extent you're used to Christianity, enjoying advantages of power and wealth and public support, if that's your context for Christianity, if that's the Christianity that you've known, grown up with, come into, it can be easy to see this moment as deeply troubling, even fearful, and wonder if it's all being lost. And that feeling, in turn, can add to the overall sense that we have right now that we're living on a precipice, on the edge of something potentially terrible, and facing the all-caps, most consequential election of our time, as the marketing for this last week's presidential debate informed me. Friends, Jesus' parable here, as simple as it is, as straightforward and clear, helps us to lift our eyes above the darker shades of our time and place and see the bigger picture. We have to see it. What Jesus told us to expect here, that this thing so small and seemingly insignificant would grow into a tree in which the birds would find rest, that's already played out. It continues to build now and it will carry on till he's finished with us. I want to remind you of this truth. If ever there was a founding band of brothers that earned a comparison to a mustard seed, it was Jesus and his ragtag group of followers too dense to understand most of what he told them and too fickle to stand by him when things got dangerous. That's his perspective, standing where he was that day teaching this parable. That was the founding church, the kingdom of God on earth. And from those humble beginnings for hundreds of years, the church grew throughout the Roman Empire among the poor and the powerless despite massive attempts of the powers that be to snuff it out. And friends, yeah, it may be true, that, and, and it's, it is sadly true 
that today the glorious and impressive cathedrals of Europe are mostly empty and look like relics of a past civilization, much like Rome's Colosseum or Greece's Parthenon. That might be true. They look more like museums than active worshiping churches. And we're right to pray and to work to reverse those trends and to see the gospel thriving in those precious places. But we also need to remember that this isn't the whole story. Right now, on this Lord's day, Christians met for worship all over China. Churches that are full and reproducing, not in big, impressive, and enviable buildings, but in the simple homes of simple believers who spread all over that country, a country whose government has done nearly everything in its power to stop that spread. Friends, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Up close, it looks small and insignificant, like a bunch of powerless people filling one home for a couple hours on a Sunday. But you zoom out, you take in the broader picture, You look at the span of its geographic spread and of the time in which it's been spreading. And what you see is that this kingdom is spreading. It is thriving. It is healthy. Can you see the encouragement for us in this, friends? In our church, in our city, in our country, and in our moment. I don't mean to minimize the importance of what we're facing. I don't mean to suggest that our political engagement doesn't matter. It does. In a couple of weeks' time, less than that now, we'll vote and pray for God's blessing and look for ways to serve our neighbors in his name. Our heads are not in the sand. Don't hear me wrong. But you know what else we'll do in a couple weeks' time? We're going to put our masks on and we're going to gather for worship on November 8th. We'll praise God. We'll confess our sins. We'll remind one another of his forgiveness of us and we'll sing our thanks to him. We'll look to his word together for encouragement, just like we're doing right now. We'll look there for correction and for hope that we can't get anywhere else. We'll go to our small groups. We'll ask our friends how they're doing and we'll open up about what's going on with us. We will pray for one another. We will weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We will share this life of the kingdom together week to week and month to month and Lord willing, year to year for as long as our breath of life may happen to last. And we'll carry on in that hope because we know ultimately what we're part of. We may not look like much right now, spread out like we are all over this room and hidden behind our masks, but we represent a kingdom that is planted that is watered, that's deep rooted and growing. It's a place of belonging, of safety and rest for people of every tribe and tongue and nation, for for anyone disillusioned enough by the false hopes of this world and all of their hatreds to make their nest in these branches. What we're doing now together ends in the vision of Revelation 7 given by Jesus to one of the men who first received our parable. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Friends, we're headed for a new Jerusalem. It is coming. Nothing can stop it and we're gonna be fine. Ultimately, friends, we're going to be fine. But how can we know that, though? If you're wondering that, you're asking the right question. How can we know we'll get there? And I don't just mean us. I mean Christianity. I mean the church. I mean what God has promised. How can we know that it'll come to pass? Because things don't look so good right now. And what we're doing together can seem so small compared to the stakes of what's happening around us. Friends, this parable that we've been looking at this evening, it shapes our perspective on the kingdom. But not only that, this parable and its beautiful, simple, specific arc sets our focus on our king. It helps us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look at what happened to him, And to know that in Christ, we go where he's already gone. And that's how we know that we'll get there. When Jesus told this little parable, he gave us a pretty good summary of his own life's arc. This man was a man from Nazareth, somewhere nobody wanted to be from. Trained as a simple carpenter uneducated, not even taken seriously by his own hometown. Now, poor, homeless, with nowhere to lay his head. He didn't look the part of a conquering king. No one would mistake this man for Caesar. And not that, that, that was true, friends, even when he was alive and well, much less when he hung on a cross in a shameful, public, and scandalous death. I believe this parable that he's told, this image of the kingdom is right there in the background as Luke tells us the story of Jesus' death on a cross in Luke 23. Jesus is hanging there between two criminals, suffering and slowly dying, while the crowds gather around him and have their fun at his expense. They mock him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. He thinks he's a king. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They take an inscription, nail it up over him for anyone who comes past, the king of the Jews. And it wasn't a compliment. Can you read the subtext? Here's a small king of a small people. Here's a fraud who talked a big talk but couldn't deliver. He's no king. He's something a whole lot more like a mustard seed. And much like a seed, this precious body was soon dead and buried. Nothing to see here. Or that's how it seemed. But this, even this, friends, especially this, was part of God's wise, shocking kingdom plan. Jesus himself said as much 
in John's gospel, chapter 12. Truly I say to you, Jesus said there, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Friends, at the bedrock underlying all of our hope as Christians, underneath our confidence that what we are now is not what we will be, that what we're doing now, so seemingly small and unremarkable, is part of something great and eternal. Underlying all of it at its bedrock is the fact that Jesus rose up from this grave in a new body as real as the one that died, a body that can never die again. And the parable of the mustard seed in its simple but profound beauty gives us not just the arc of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but the arc of where his people will go in his wake. Where he has gone, we will surely follow as the birds who make their nest in his branches. Will you pray with me now that he will give us a faith to see through what seems small and unimportant and to the beauty of what he's doing and the power that is its sole guarantee. Let's pray together now for his help. Father, I pray that you would help us through the power of your word in all of its beauty and simplicity to set our eyes on Jesus and to see everything else around us through him. We know there is much in us that wants more than what you've promised and that shrinks back from the cost of, of placing our hope here. And I pray that by the power of your spirit through your word tonight, you would overcome that indwelling sin that remains and give us hearts that love what you've promised and that invest without any kind of hesitancy in what you're doing amongst us now. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, amen.